Okay. You want to go ahead and read the thing? I will go ahead and read the thing. It had been an odd January in the city of Boston. The weather was vacillating between being too bitterly cold to snow and above 40 degrees Fahrenheit. The war to end all wars had just ended and prohibition was about to be ratified. The city seemed poised for renewal for a well-deserved calm after the horrific storm of war. At just after noon, a sound like a roaring train shook the North End neighborhood as the giant metal tank that dominated Keeney Square tore, rivets popping out of it with a sound like machine gun fire, and a nearly two and a half million gallon tide of thick brown fluid rushed outward in a giant wave, smashing the elevated train track, collapsing houses, and drowning people and horses alike in its inescapable grasp. It sounds like a joke. Did you hear the one about the guy who couldn't outrun molasses? But on that day in Boston, there was no humor to be found in the deaths of horses, dogs, men, women, and children. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, Chief Viscosity Expert at Relative Disasters Laboratories. I'm his sister Ella, Chair of the Industrial Molasses Department here at Relative Disasters University. Thank you so much for that horrifying story, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> Another phobia I didn't know I had. <laughs> right? Drowning and drowning slowly. <laughs> so horrible. Uh, today we're going to be taking a look at the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. Yeah. We're going to start off by going into what exactly molasses is. Most of us have at least heard of it, if not grown up on a steady diet of it. Molasses is basically what happens when you refine sugarcane or sugar beets into sugar. You get molasses. It's a very, very thick liquid. Molasses is great. It's a very, very good foodstuff. It's very easy to make, uh, as long as you have, you know, sugarcane. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly thick. Uh, it's usually used nowadays as a sweetener in food. In colonial times, it was a ingredient for brewing beer. Mm -hmm. And the dark side of molasses is that rum is made with it. As we all know from the Atlantic slave trade, the main way that the trade tended to run was you would have molasses traded for slaves who became enslaved to work in the sugarcane fields down in the Caribbean. And then that product was exported as molasses back to New England, which was made into rum, which was traded for slaves. And it was a uh, very robust market. Yeah, lots of people. Well, no, that's not true. A few people made a lot of money. Yes, very few people made a very huge amount of money off of it. But molasses is a uh, it's an important product for making rye bread, cooking, baking, and making beer. And it has industrial uses where there are some mortar recipes uh, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're doing brickwork that use molasses. Is that true? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. I didn't know that. 
Well, yeah. I guess it makes sense, right? It's super you can sticky. Use it as a binding <laughs> as a binding agent. Well, yeah, <laughs> you can use it as a binding agent. That's wild. Early printing presses use these things called composition ink rollers, mm-hmm. and if you mix molasses with gelatin glue and glycerin, you can cast onto those ink rollers incredibly easily. Wow. You can use molasses as a fertilizer. I mean, molasses is basically thick sugar, so microbes absolutely love it. So mm-hmm. if you dump it in your soil, you can get some, some good uses out of that for fertilizer. But it can also <laughs> be distilled into ethanol because, again, it's mostly sugar. And as we know, once you distill sugar products down, you get alcohol. And that's what this gigantic 50-foot-tall and 90-foot-in-diameter molasses tank in Boston's North End neighborhood. Have you seen pictures of That's it? That's what it was there. I have, I've seen pictures of both the tank and the aftermath, and it is it is bananas. The tank itself is so huge. Like, I had no idea how big it was until you look at it on the skyline, and it's in kind of an industrial area. It dominates the area. Yep. Like, you oh, can absolutely. tell people used it as a landmark. The size of the tank really reminds me of those sort of water tower tanks. Yeah, it's not as high have... off the ground. I mean, no, probably for the best. It was only, I think it was like 15 feet off the ground. But it was elevated. It, it did have little legs on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, a, a big, big tank. I mean, the tank had a capacity of two and a half million gallons. Okay. And it was at capacity. It Is was just correct? short of capacity. No, it was it was filled because here's the thing. The people who owned the tank knew that they couldn't safely fill it to capacity. Mm. And that's just one of those little facts where you're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, and they were uh, all about safety, weren't they? Oh, they were not <laughs> at all. Oh, my God. So the Purity Distilling Company owned this tank. And the Purity Distilling Company had a big problem. The big problem that they had was that Prohibition was about to be ratified. It had already been ratified by a bunch of states. They had built this tank in 1915, but by the time 1917 rolled around, the Purity Distilling Company kind of saw the writing on the wall as far as Prohibition was concerned, Mm. and they sold themselves, essentially, to the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. So the USIAC... They manufactured industrial alcohol, so they didn't make, you know, drinking alcohol. Not the fun kind. No, the, well, depends on your definition of fun. No, my definition of fun is like a nice, cold, dark and stormy on an August night. (laughs) This is not that kind of alcohol. This is the kind of alcohol that, um, no, you, you could, you could use it to take, uh, you know, take the ring off your bathtub. You would not drink this stuff. Okay. So the United States Industrial Alcohol Company outright purchased the Purity Distilling Company. Basically, they became a chemical firm, mm-hmm. and all of their processes were to make ethanol. So ethanol, being the product of that distillation process, they used a ton of molasses for that. To be specific, uh, about 13,000 tons of it, um, <laughs> which is about what was held in that 2.3 million gallon tank. Now, was it being processed near the tank? Like, was the tank just a holding tank and it was processed somewhere else? Or were they also... Because I know the the North End used to be full of kind of these industrial warehouse sites. Yeah. 
So the the Purity Distilling Company, even though they were based in Boston, this this tank was a holding tank. This was right. not a uh, this was not the kind of tank that you would you know hook a big hose up to and uh, and run directly to a facility. It would mm-hmm. be something where you would hold the molasses for a while, and if it started to rot, it didn't matter. You know, if it started uh-huh. to well, because it didn't matter because the uh, it was all going to you know become ethanol anyway. Right. So. Who cares? It's just so weird to think of molasses as an industrial product. Like the only use that I have for molasses is to put it on cream of wheat, like in the middle of the winter. The way that this worked is basically these gigantic tanker ships would come up from the sugarcane areas in the Caribbean and the uh, Central American nations that were growing sugarcane. And these tankers think sort of like oil tankers that we have now. These would come up, and they would bring up huge amounts of molasses. And the day before the tank ruptured and caused the flood, it had been filled. Uh, a ship from Puerto Rico had come up and sort of topped off the tank. The tank was about half full, mm-hmm. so it had it had had about 1.2 million gallons in it, and then another 1.1 was added to it. So you wound up with 2.3 million gallons sitting in a 2.5 million gallon tank, okay? It's a lot of molasses. And a number of things went wrong. <laughs> I could just imagine like how heavy that must have been. It's in, it's incredibly heavy. It's 13,000 tons of yeah, molasses. Yeah, that's wild. It's so heavy. It's not just heavy, it's dense. Right, so right. So it has about 1.4 tons per cubic meter. So each gallon of molasses weighs about 12 pounds. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I've just it's... realized why molasses is sold in small jars. <laughs> yes, because you couldn't carry the big ones. <laughs> I, I'm just imagining somebody going to like a grocery store and getting a gallon jug of molasses. I mean, first of all, at that point, I think you have a sugar problem. But second of no. all, that's going to be heavy. It's going to be real heavy. Yep. So a couple of things went wrong. First of all, this tank. We got to talk about the tank. So I understand it was an older tank. No, no. It was just badly made. Okay. Uh, it, It was only five years old when it broke. The tank was built in 1914 and it ruptured in 1919. Was it made with substandard material? Not only was it made with substandard materials, we have sort of the uh, early 1900s trifecta here. Oh, boy. It was made out of bad steel. Mm -hmm. It had really no way other than natural effusion to deal with any temperature changes. So there was no, like, venting system. Not really, because if you vented anything, then... Oh, right, you you lose your ethanol. you You lose your ethanol. The construction of it ignored most of the uh, the safety tests. Oh, no. Yeah, so the USIA's treasurer was a guy named Arthur Gell, and he was the one in charge of construction. Not an engineer, not a construction guy, not even a molasses guy. He was their money guy. <laughs> oh, no, you never want to put the money people in charge. <laughs> never put the money guy in charge of construction because what winds up happening is the engineers come to him and say, look, we need these materials. And he says, well, those are more expensive than these materials. And they're like, yeah, but... Not a molasses guy. Yeah, not a molasses guy. And they were supposed to have safety tests, the most important of which was to, after you construct the tank, 
fill it with water to mm-hmm. make sure it doesn't leak. So in order to comply with the federal regulation, they put about a foot and a half of water in the bottom of it and then said, we did it, folks, and drained it and then filled it with molasses. The bottom is great. (laughs) The other problem was that the tank was not usually filled to capacity, okay? It was usually like anywhere from a third to two-thirds full at any given time. So each section of the walls had to deal with a different amount of pressure every time more molasses was put into it because when you put these sort of intermittent varied loads into it it stresses the construction in different ways Mm -hmm. finally the tank leaked it leaked so badly that local residents would literally like walk up to it with buckets to get their their molasses They'd send their kids out at like early in the morning or late at night and, and they'd, they'd just siphon off molasses because it was literally leaking out through the walls. Oh, no. Yeah, it was real bad. And the tank leaked so badly that people were complaining about it. And so their solution yeah. was genius. Here's the solution. They fixed it. No, no, we're not going to fix it. We're going to paint it brown. I mean, <laughs> a money person was in charge of that decision, exactly. I feel like. <laughs> So they painted it That's brown. That's genius. I mean, on some level, obviously not the level that you want. It's but. sort of the Wiley e. Coyote school of, of it's a creative of solving solution. a problem. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Oh, well, God. golly, everybody's complaining about how much it leaks. We'll just paint it brown so they can't see it. Hey, I don't think it's leaking anymore. So that's the construction of it. Wow. Also, the steel walls were approximately about half as thick as they should have been for a tank carrying that much weight. Mm. This would have been fine as a water tower. Okay, mm. This was disastrous as a molasses tank yeah. because the steel was too thin by about a half. And the steel was made with the absolute cheapest, worst steel these people could find. Mm. In 2014, a group of people went back and sort of investigated because some of the, the original tank is still around, right? And they did a they did a sampling of the metal of the tank. It has no manganese in it. Oh, hey, you need that for steel. You need that for good <laughs> steel because otherwise, I mean, steel without that can basically be snapped by hand. Oh, okay? that's not what you want. And yeah. A bunch of other stuff, too. I mean, the rivets were badly positioned and uh, the rivet holes weren't in a convenient spot, I guess. So some people just punched rivets through and like that formed cracks and all this other stuff. So the main failure mm-hmm. started at the manhole cover near the base of the tank. There was a small crack. They knew about the crack. Wasn't a big deal. Nothing's leaking out of that particular God, crack. nothing is a big deal to these people. Nah, it was fine. These are the chillest people I've ever heard of. A crack develops around the manhole cover. Mm-hmm. And they have some weird weather. The flood occurred on January 15th. January 14th. The ship from Puerto Rico had dropped off another million gallons. So there are two theories about how much the temperature messed with things. Mm -hmm. So for one thing, when the ships drop off molasses, they heat it a little bit. And they do that so that it will flow, okay? Right. Because you don't want... you, you Pouring cold molasses is like pouring cold tar. It just takes a lot longer than it would otherwise. Mm-hmm. So to speed up the process, they heat the molasses. So temperature variable number one, they dumped a million gallons of warm molasses on top of a million point two gallons 
of cold molasses that have been sitting in the tank for a while. Mm -hmm. Temperature variant number two. The temperature on January 14th was about two degrees. The temperature on January 15th was above 40. And that's Fahrenheit. And that's Fahrenheit. Yeah. If that had been Celsius, that would have been even scarier. Oh, yeah. But, but... <laughs> it's it's two degrees Fahrenheit one day and 40 degrees Fahrenheit the next day. You know, um, that's there was a no big snow jump, on the ground. But that's it's not a huge jump. Unusual. Like, that's not unheard of. No, 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 no. That's New England in the winter. Every once in a while, we'll get, you know, like a, a 40, a 40 degree day followed by, you know, 20, 19, 13, 2, negative 10. Hey, and yeah, then, you know, back up again. Likes to mess it's with you. It's just how things go, especially because Boston is on the coast and you yep. get a lot of weird weather coming in from the ocean. Oh, right, right. And they were right on the ocean. Yeah. This is Kearney oh, yeah. Park. That's like stone's throw. Yeah. So the way that they would usually get the molasses out was they'd run a pipeline. From, and this is kind of nuts. They'd run a pipeline to the purity ethanol plant, which mm -hmm. was between Willow Street and Everett's Way in Cambridge. Right, right, right. East Cambridge. So they'd run a pipe all the way from, from Keeney's Square to Cambridge, the north end of Boston to Cambridge. That's across and the that's river. Usually how they'd yeah. Get, yeah. <laughs> and that's usually how they'd get the molasses out. That's a hike. Whether it was the temperature, whether it was the fact that the tank was poorly constructed, the end result was that at about 1230 in the afternoon, the tank burst. Mm. From what we have, because we have eyewitnesses accounts, mm -hmm. we had newspaper people on the scene from the Boston Post yep. and the Boston Globe. Um, they were there very, very quickly. So we know that the tank didn't like so much burst outward as it did rip. Right. This sent rivets flying off uh, with enough force to punch through walls. Jeez. And then... We have the potential energy situation. So, as we said before, the density of molasses is about 12 pounds per gallon and 2.3 million gallons, weighing about 12 to 13 tons, gets released all at once. So I read a report that said that the wave went outwards from the tank at 55 kilometers per hour. Yeah. Is that accurate? That's about it. Because I... I can't imagine that. I can't imagine molasses moving that quickly. 55 kilometers an hour, 35 miles an hour. That's incredibly fast. And the estimates of the wave height mm -hmm. vary. Some people put it at 15 feet. Oh, Some people put it at 25 feet. The actual plaque that commemorates the flood says that it was 40 feet high. Mm -hmm. However high it was... It was instantly devastating. Mm. When the molasses came out, the steel panels of the tank smashed through the Atlantic Avenue structure of Boston's elevated railway. Mm. It knocked a streetcar off of the tracks, and it collapsed part of the elevated train track mm -hmm. called the L. They're held up with these gigantic steel, you know, they look like girders, yeah. basically. And it collapsed them. It also collapsed buildings. It didn't run very far because even 2.3 million gallons of molasses is still only going to make it so far. Mm -hmm. But basically, everybody who was working nearby, and this was a labor area, like lots of people were, were working here, everybody was caught and killed. Mm. One of the biggest tragedies of it were that three children 
who were walking home from school were picked up by the wave, and it was a brother, a sister, and I believe one of their friends, mm-hmm. and uh, picked them up in this molasses wave, carried them something like three blocks. Oh my god. And the little girl drowned in the molasses, and their friend was killed after being struck by a railroad car. Ooh. And then the little boy survived, but with a severe head injury, as he was carried into a light post. Oh my god, poor babies. Yeah, and all three of these children were 10 years old. Ugh. Yeah, it, that, that one's really hard. And 21 people were killed in the, in the flood, but another, like, almost 200 people total were injured. Another one of the people who was killed was a, uh, a firefighter mm-hmm. because emergency crews were actually very quick to respond to this. Well, there was a firehouse in the, the neighborhood. There's a firehouse in the neighborhood, exactly. And the USS Nantucket, which was a training ship for the Massachusetts Nautical School, Aww. it was docked nearby and a bunch of cadets and their lieutenant ran to try to help and pull out survivors. Oh, wow. And do some crowd control, too, because, you know, people were rubbernecking as soon as this happened, and they were like, no, 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 you need to get out of here. (laughs) Oh, God. One member of the fire department went into the molasses to try to rescue somebody and uh, was also pulled under and suffocated. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like it would have been very easy to get out once you were, like, once you were even ankle deep. If you were in the sort of blast area, you were in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. You can't swim in it. You can't run in it. It doesn't seem like you would float in molasses at all. And you can't float in molasses because it's so viscous. Exactly. One of the hardest things about this is that because of the nature of the substance itself, Mm -hmm. rescuers were unable to really save many of the people who were actually caught in the wave. Yeah, I read about that. They were able to save a lot of the people who were on the outskirts of it. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you were up into it, up to your knees, they could get you out. And the other thing is that people were preserved under this, like in Pompeii. And it's because the the molasses, you know, the people that it completely submerged, Mm -hmm. they were basically crushed to death Mm -hmm. and suffocated and under 10 feet for a while, of this incredibly viscous liquid. Mm -hmm. And so they just were sort of perfectly preserved in that moment of death. Mm. A few victims were were even swept off into Boston Harbor, and those weren't found until three to four months after uh, the disaster. Oh, boy. The, uh, The Red Cross, Boston police, the Army, and the Navy personnel arrived. Big shout out to the nurses, from the Red Cross. They did an incredible job. They did. And some of whom actively dove into the molasses. Uh, Remember how we just said you can't swim in molasses? Well, these women saved at least three children. Oh, man. And and a few other people. Yeah. Super nurses. Super nurses. (laughs) So after they had found all the people that they could find, Mm -hmm. they were then faced with the astronomical challenge of how do you clean up molasses? See, this is where I always get a little bogged down. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Just thinking about how difficult it is to clean up a little drip of molasses that gets onto the floor, gets onto your clothes, or gets onto your fingers, knowing how sticky and horrible that stuff is to deal with. How do you clean up so many millions of gallons of it? Well... Fortunately, the fire chief was a smart guy. Oh, good. And what he did was he hooked up their fireboats and had them pump water directly from Boston Harbor 
because salt water helps to dissolve the molasses. No kidding. Yeah. Ah. And so the salt water pretty much just washed it into the city's drainage oh, system. Thank you very much. I'm sure that and was appreciated. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was. Yes, the rats ate very Nobody well flushed the toilet ever again. <laughs> the water was stained brown yep. until summer mm -hmm. rolled around. So, you know, for six months. And of course, you know, the rescue workers, the cleanup crews, all the people who had gone to help, all the people who had just gone to look at it, they had tracked molasses everywhere they'd gone. Oh, God. So for years afterwards, Boston had this sort of sticky reputation. And, um, Love that dirty and, water. Yep, exactly. And um, for, you know, I mean, you could go to the North End today and people will still tell you that it smells like molasses on a hot day. Okay. It smells like trash on a hot day. Some of that trash is sweet trash. Sure. You can't smell the 100-year-old molasses residue. I appreciate you that you want to. You cannot smell the 100-year-old. No. But there were people who, as late as the 1970s, were still, they were still smelling it. I mean, Boston is a filthy city. I, I love Boston, but... And we say that with love. <laughs> <laughs> it's not sparkling at no, any corner. No, Well, no big city is sparkling. Not you in America. The other thing that made rescue operations so hard... The molasses coming out of the tank was relatively warm, mm -hmm. but then as soon as it hits that 40-degree day, it starts to cool mm. very rapidly. So what winds up happening is that the viscosity of the molasses drops, and you know after that first initial rush of coming out and moving at about 35 miles an hour, 55 kilometers, mm -hmm. it, it slows to a crawl and starts to harden. Now, it doesn't freeze, is, right? It does not freeze. No, 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 no. But it slows down um, after about an hour, an hour and a half of rushing out, which made rescuing people from it all the harder. Yeah, it's not good. None of it's good. None of it's good. Like so, so many things we talk about. <laughs> yes, like so many disasters for some reason. So obviously there were deaths. You know, there was a huge cleanup effort. A little bit of property damage, sounds like. There was a lot of property damage, yeah. So basically, that area, that area that the tank was in was this um, uh, industrial area. Mm -hmm. And not only were most of the workers who were there, and, and thank goodness, the majority of the workers were on their lunch break. Because again, this thing blew at 1230. If everybody had been where they were supposed to be for their jobs, uh, the death toll would have been a lot higher. Mm. Even so... All of the buildings were rendered unusable in that general area. Most of them were, were just either knocked down completely or so flooded with this mixture of molasses and uh, debris that you just couldn't use them anymore. Uh, it took them a while even to be able to replace the, the L because the elevated spot that got knocked down, mm -hmm. they couldn't replace it for months afterwards because... Every time they'd go out there to try replacing it, they found that, that the ground still wouldn't support the weight because of how much damage had been done. Oh, no. And, hey, here's another. At least this didn't happen in, in the course of this greater tragedy. Mm -hmm. At the time that the L collapsed, a train was on it and headed in that direction. And the engineer was able to stop the train in time. So the people on the train were not injured in any way. They were inconvenienced by having to find another way to get where they were going, but 
it wasn't like an entire train got subsumed in the wave as well. Right. So the next thing that happens is the United States Industrial Alcohol Company sees which way the wind is blowing. The city of Boston (laughs) is mad at them. Why? And... And they decide that they are going to preemptive, they're going to get out in front of this, right? And they come out with a statement that says that uh, this tank was blown up with dynamite by an anarchist. Yes! When in doubt, you need to blame the anarchists. And you got to remember that this is right after World War I. There had been anarchist groups mm-hmm. who had been blamed for bombings across the country at the time Boston's North End was a predominantly Italian neighborhood, so we get a little bit of that nice, sweet, sweet racism to go along with everything else. And they say, well, this was obviously intentionally blown up by evilly disposed persons. That's a direct quote right there. So I realize there's this is not a defense in any way, but uh, this is directly no. following the Wall Street bombings, which were anarchist bombings. Is that yes. right? Okay. The, so well, they were the just like... Bombings- they were just like uh, following the news. <laughs> they picked ripped something from good, the <laughs> exactly ripped from the headline. God, <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's that's what they decided to go with. They decided to say that the the tank was blown up by anarchists. It wasn't, and it was pretty much immediately provable that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. If every time you fill your tank, it groans, and kids can go up and get molasses from the drippings coming out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I just feel like the anarchists might have been involved in, like, uh, picking the steel, uh, designing the yes, tanks. They probably, were in it for yeah, the long game. They were game. working from the inside. <laughs> exactly. There's a great quote. So the treasurer, what really sunk them was the fact that there was a, uh, a letter from Jell mm-hmm. where one of the people who had worked on the tank brought in shards of steel from the tank walls that had blown off of it before the tank exploded, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, just during general use, these shards of steel had blown off of it. And the man's response was, quote, I don't know what you want me to do. The tank still stands, end quote. Yeah, that's not a molasses guy right there. That's not a molasses guy. The guy right with there. the shards of steel? Who's concerned? That's the molasses guy. <laughs> That's a molasses guy. Jell, <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? Yeah. The United States Industrial Alcohol Company winds up getting hit with 125 lawsuits. I read this was actually one of the first class action lawsuits in the U.S. It is. Yeah. That's so That's so weird to think about the U.S. before the time of class action lawsuits. When the company claimed that the tank had been blown up by anarchists, mm-hmm. an auditor had to be brought in, and the auditor was appointed by the court, and the auditor found them responsible. Three years later, after three years of investigation and hearings, the company is found responsible, and they have to pay out $628,000 in damages. To, wait, for everything? Yeah. That seems low. So, the people who were actively killed... So the 21 people who died in the flood, each one of their families or closest relatives Mm -hmm. received $7,000. Oh, boy. Yep. Now, to put that in perspective, $7,000 in 2021 money Mm -hmm. is 
about $103,000. That doesn't seem like enough. It's not. For the it's death not. of a it's nowhere near loved enough. one, especially one that was caused by just blatant negligence. Yeah, it, it's blatant. <laughs> it's as blatant as the negligence gets right there. It it's, really is. We put up a structure. What more do you want from us? <laughs> it holds water. Come on. It, hold, it held a foot of water in the bottom of it when we started. It's fine. What do you want me to do? The $628,000 in damages that they paid out. So it was 7000 to each victim's family, and then the rest was to the city of Boston and various other things. That equals about nine and a quarter million two thousand and twenty dollars That still seems really low. It's okay. incredibly low. Nine million, considering that at the time... The United States Industrial Alcohol Company. Let's just leave it at they were making a lot more than that. Yeah, because Jill was not a molasses person; he was a money person, and he knew he was, he was probably doing excellent at money. Yeah. So. Well, congrats to the shareholders. Right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The shareholders win. What? Okay. Okay. And her, Deep and, breath. You know, two dead kids, nineteen dead other people. Uh, one of whom was a driver who drove his truck out of it, trying to get other people out of it. Truck gets mm-hmm. bogged down. He apparently threw a little girl to safety before he got sucked under. I mean, we're talking like people actively trying to save other people getting killed. And, uh, yep, here's seven grand. Sorry for your loss. This is nothing compared to the loss of human life, but that whole neighborhood was destroyed. Absolutely. Like yep. it just when you look at pictures of the wreckage, it's just like oh yeah, a few it looks buildings like a bomb are kind off. of still on their foundations, yeah. but otherwise it just yeah, it looks like a bomb scene. Yeah, it really, which I guess really it was does. in a way, yeah. <laughs> but not like <sighs> you know an anarchist bomb scene. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't have the giant A. <laughs> yeah, for anarchists. Yeah, the lawsuit case was as you said. It was like the first class the first major class action lawsuit in the US and what was neat about it was it was also the first case in which expert witnesses were really really used they called in cool. engineers metallurgists architects molasses people <laughs> yeah i'm sorry they I called know. in the Just people molasses expert for the defense <laughs> ex- no for the for the prosecution for the prosecution sorry sorry yeah. All of it just winds down to, look, you put 13,000 tons of molasses at 15 feet of height, killing 21 people and injuring nearly 200 more. Uh, In a leaky paper bag. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So uh, the end result of all this is that the United States Industrial Alcohol Company loses a bit of money, but they, they continue onward. Purity Distilling gets its name absolutely dragged through the mud, even though they were, at this point, no longer responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And their particular brand goes immediately out of business. A group of families starts lobbying the entire molasses industry to reform how molasses is stored and used. They took on big molasses. Yeah, they took on big molasses in 1919. That is impressive. Yeah. You know, now... There's no sign of any wreckage. There's a park there, a very nice park. The entire property became a yard for the Boston Elevated Railway. Mm-hmm. And they uh, put in a city-owned recreational complex, the Langone Park. Yeah, so where the tank used to be is actually a baseball diamond. Yep. 
It's a Little League baseball diamond. Little League. Oh, I didn't know that. Little League. That's adorable. And there is a small plaque there that commemorates... Well, a small plaque is... is, There's another park to the east where the actual uh, Molasses Flood plaque lies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to this day, people still claim that they can smell molasses up there. I just, I feel like the flood captured people's imaginations in a way that, like, this is an unusual disaster. This is not something that you ever forget about once you hear about it. It's not an earthquake. It's not a volcano. There haven't been, you know, 40 disasters of molasses floodings. This is like... Right. It's a very specific, very kind of localized disaster. And people talk about it a lot. Uh, When I was in grad school, one of my classmates did a project on public history. And they went to the North End and interviewed people asking if they yeah. heard of the molasses flood, and most people had. And then they asked if they had heard of Boston's Great Fire, and almost uh, nobody had. Interesting. So it really like, catches people's imaginations. I would say it's yeah. one of the first things you learn about local history if you're into Boston. Yeah. Um, and it just yeah. like really sticks with you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it definitely grabs the, grabs the, the consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's such a weird thing. It's like the first time you hear of it, you're kind of like, that sounds funny. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) And when you get into the, like, it doesn't make sense as an abstract story. And then when you get into the dynamics of it and the history of the tank and how it was being used, you think, oh, of course, like it's a miracle it waited this long to collapse. Yeah, it's a miracle it had those five years. You (laughs) know? The 100th anniversary of this event was in 2019. Yes, it was. And they did a ceremony for it Mm -hmm. uh, where they read the names of the 21 people who died. And they used ground-penetrating radar to find the tank, uh, the concrete slab that the tank stood on is still there. It's about two Mm feet-ish under the surface of the baseball diamond at Langone Park. That's so cool. Yeah. And a few years beforehand, a team of scientists and students at Harvard basically recreated the disaster in miniature scale. Yes. They made a scale model of the neighborhood. They made a scale model of the tank. Mm -hmm. They filled it with corn syrup and tried as best they could to replicate the temperature issues. Mm -hmm. And when they broke the tank, not only... Did their experiment recreate the size of the waves? They got a wave that if scaled up would have been about 30 feet. Yep. It easily hit the speed marker. Mm-hmm. Like 50, 55, 56 kilometers an hour is pretty much right on the money. Mm. You know, that's coming at you as fast as a car. That's and you faster than you can run. Way. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, that's much awful. faster. Yeah. Yeah. I watched yeah. that uh, video on YouTube and just, just seeing like, so it looks kind of silly on one level because you're like, oh, it's a cute little model Boston. But yeah. just watching how quickly the wave comes and how thick yep. it is is a little scary. Yeah. yeah. It's something that would be absolutely horrifying to be caught in. It's the only equivalent I can think of is like being caught in a sudden lava flow. Right. Because so you can't get out of the way. The reason that they studied the molasses flood is because, you know, there's no other molasses flood. <laughs> Fingers crossed there will right. never be another molasses flood. But thick liquids do behave in a certain way. And yeah. just knowing like how they flood outwards, uh, you can understand more about the dynamics of 
the way lava moves, uh, the way mud yeah. moves in a mudslide, and yep. avalanches. Because mudslides still happen, and mud avalanches yes. still happen, exactly. And those are yeah. equally horrifying. Yeah, and equally as hard to escape. Yeah, so it's good that people are doing research on that. So the final note that I have on this is that you would think that this is the only molasses-based disaster in the United States, but... Did you find another one? In 2013, in 2013, oh, no. uh, in Hawaii, there was a huge molasses spill in Honolulu. Oh, Harbor. no. There was a, a pipe mm -hmm. that ran into the, the port pipeline, and it had sprung a leak, you know, months before the spill had actually happened, but then the pipe ruptured, and 1,400 tons of molasses spilled out into Honolulu Harbor. Oh, no. It went directly into the ocean and basically killed everything, everything. living in the ocean. Oh, uh, no, no people, but lots of fish, other marine species. It injured or killed a bunch of coral. It was real bad. So basically, molasses is out to get us, and we should not be putting it on our breakfast cereal anymore. I think that what we're you're putting it. Th no, no, the exact opposite. I think we need to. I think we need to continue to taunt the angry molasses gods. <laughs> the molasses gods. <laughs> by consuming as much of it as we can. No, I, it's just look. It's it's such a molasses is fascinating because it's such a it's a syrup, and mm -hmm. it's viscosity is really unlike almost everything else that we run into. Mm -hmm. And molasses is so tightly tied to so much of American history and especially bad American history. Mm -hmm. You can draw a clear line between Boston baked beans and the Atlantic slave trade yep. and the rum and everything else. So advice for time travelers. Advice for All time right. travelers. This is a really tough one. Yeah, because there's not a lot you can do once the tank ruptures. Once the tank right. breaks, you can't save anybody. You can't get out of there. So I was going to suggest scuba gear. Uh, the problem with scuba gear is that the pressure from all those tons of molasses is more than enough to kill you, even if you don't suffocate. There was a man who died, one of the 21 who died. Uh, mm -hmm. He had his face and his head completely above the the level of molasses he was stuck in it you know it had cooled around him and he could not get out on his own oh but he couldn't expand his chest to breathe he couldn't yeah. expand his chest enough to breathe oh god yeah so okay, never mind scuba gear might not be your your best bet oh you don't have to sugarcoat that scuba gear is a terrible idea submersible uh, submersible sure uh, for a very brief period of time, your submersible will be a very popular destination for 21 people. <laughs> Great. I was going to suggest you, you come in 1915 with, an, with a steel inspector, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you write a very sternly worded letter to the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. Oh, I would bring a reporter as well. Yeah. Bring a couple. Bring a couple. The Boston Globe and the Boston... What was the other one? The Boston Post. The Post. Post. Yeah, yeah, they're competing, so... Exactly. So they're both yeah, you gonna... Yeah, make it really vicious. Exactly. Exactly. And then, uh, and then, you know, this stuff doesn't happen in the north end of Boston, doesn't smell like molasses for years, or... On the other hand, nobody gets free molasses from the leaking tank anymore, so... I'm not sure that's an even trade. <laughs> <laughs> I love free molasses. <laughs> I mean, we all love I used free to molasses. love free molasses. 
Maybe not so much these days. Okay. Uh, that is a truly horrifying story. Thank you. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Uh, we have the exact opposite of this disaster. We're going to go to the other end of the world and talk about the crash of the George One. Okay. That sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.